Hi, you're with Julian on the Brown Notes and a tribute to the late lamented singer Damo Suzuki who passed away uh, last weekend and the band he fronted through three of the probably the arguably the finest trifecta of albums in music history can and this is not for people with the attention span of a TikTok video so I would advise a sleeping bag or a pillow. Um, I have always thought that I'd do a piece on Can, one of my favourite bands of all time. In fact, if I was to say off the top of my head, one of, I would say I would keep their discography over any band. If you offered me, I can only keep one. Do you want to keep the Beatles discography? I would choose Can's discography over any act. And this is going to focus on the albums, the four albums, one of which is a collection that Damo Suzuki appeared on most through the main run of Can's discography, but also on the albums either side of that up until um, the point where they went from being outstanding to perfunctory. Um, you know, I don't need a New Order album after Technique. I don't need a Cure album after Disintegration. Once you've had 10 out of 10, I'm not interested in 7 out of 10. Um, Damo Suzuki was from Japan, from Kobe in Japan, and he passed away on the 9th of February, age 74. Uh, and it's still bewildering how much can achieved in a few years uh, with him. Um, the notion of kraut rock, if you're not familiar to it, is very much in opposition to British American rock music, um, but still fed by a lot of avant-garde, alternative and psychedelic British and American music. One of the key elements in it, in the, in the story of Can, is that unlike a band like the Beatles, who were friends, who got together, uh, like Elvis Presley and R&B music and learn how to play these were very heavily qualified musicians and musical theorists that were studying avant-garde classical music by the likes of Stockhausen who dismissed pop music and in the end when the 1960s turned psychedelic with the likes of the Beatles suddenly thought that it was the most amazing art in the world and got turned on to making popular music that way and in the formative steps of Can the I can't remember which of the founding members but one went to New York and got involved in the Andy Warhol Velvet Underground scene and you can certainly hear at the start that the main formative plank in this music would have been uh, the Velvet Underground but Krautrock itself which sort of emerged at the end of the 60s in Germany for me is uh, up there as my equal favourite musical genre it's very very wide ranging it's easy to define when you look at certain acts like new uh, of a particular sound but then you go all the way through acts like cluster and up to craft work uh, and it's incredibly wide-ranging at ashra temple in tangerine dream um, there is no one size fits all i think the best act of all is can uh, and that's what this whole piece is going to be a walkthrough of um, they had a remarkably stable lineup. I mean, a lot of these kraut rock acts um, sort of exploded together and exploded apart quite often. But Can really did keep the same lineup 
when it mattered and towards the end of and i think krautrock itself petered out i think that the stalwarts that were still making great records at the end of the 1970s were doing so in pretty much the electronic field you've got bands like harmonia and Kraftwerk and so on but the real rock acts were probably from 68 to around sort of 75 76 was the heyday and did it burn bright you could find 50 outstanding albums from that period um can with holger zuke on bass and it's very important to know that holger zuke was uh, a preeminent technician with tape splicing and he used to record the band's jam sessions and put them together cutting and splicing up tapes of their 10-hour jam sessions into songs so he's regarded as a pioneer of sampling um, and perhaps the most important Erman Schmidt on keyboards Michael Caroli on guitar I think virtually all of these are dead now certainly Caroli is Suke is Liebesit is I'm not sure about Erman Schmidt let's have a look and see if he's still living yep he's he's a, I think he's the last man standing maybe did Malcolm Mooney die as well um, and Jackie Liebesit now Michael Caroli's guitar work rivals anybody uh, and, uh, and that's both from his technical proficiency and also his uh, use of the instrument as far as creating soundscapes and riffs uh, go and Jackie Liebesit is up there with the greatest rock drummers in history uh, a much more jazz inflected drummer notoriously on point um, I don't think anyone's really beaten him. You might say that people like John Bonham um, outdid him as far as being a rock drummer. I don't think they were better. Um, he's a phenomenon. And they had two lead vocalists, Malcolm Mooney, who was an African-American who suffered from mental health problems and only lasted through one album, um, Monster Party, their debut album, and Damo Suzuki, who lasted for three albums. But I'm going to walk through the albums either side which paints a bigger picture um it certainly posits malcolm mooney across three albums really and damon suzuki across maybe five uh, and i think those collections and the main five albums that i'm going to talk about which is seven in total uh for me is arguably the best seven album run in music history not as important in some ways as the beatles or the songwriting perhaps um, but in their own way just as influential across a raft of other acts. I should also point out the humidity because I record this I've had to turn the aircon on and close the door and it's going to be unbearable. Um, Can formed in Cologne in Germany um, arguably you know the one of one of the cultural centers of Germany um, in 1968 and at that stage they got Malcolm Mooney on board to do vocals um, they recorded an album which has so their their, their discography has moved slightly in the, um, their debut album Monster, Monster Party Monster Party Monster Movie has actually been replaced as their debut album um, by Delay 1968 um, which is a fascinating album so they recorded it an album that they wanted to uh, release as their debut called Prepare to Meet Thy Penum. Um For self-serious Germans, they had a terrible sense of humour. Uh, one of their albums is called Soon Over Babaluma. Now, 
delay 1968 which was supposed to be called prepare to meet my moon was released in 1981 and has sort of is sort of now their de facto debut album even though monster movie is is their proper album this was an album that they broadly recorded and, and no one wanted I don't get the argument at the time, which is that they went back to try and make a more commercial album. I don't agree that Monster Movie is a more commercial album. Um, they both seem about in the same bracket. Now, this is a, a fascinating record. It's not quite as consistent as um, their later studio albums, but it is, and it is the one time they seem more in debt to another act which is probably the Velvet Underground whereas for virtually every other record they seem in debt to themselves alone and it's other acts that have copied their style and their sound and their ethos and everything else about them but you can hear the Velvet Underground on this record but it's still a worthwhile record and the track from it Thief has been covered by Radiohead and is one of the best songs they've ever done um, most bands would kill to have a debut album as strong and as idiosyncratic as this and Malcolm Mooney really shines and it it moves him from only having performed on one album um, and also when we add the um, two subsequent collections he appears across actually four albums um, and they're all great so I'd give um, Delay 1968 an 8.5 out of 10 out of all of the records I'm going to talk about, it's probably the one for the purists the most. Um, and I'd probably come to it last out of this list. From there, and they worked so fast, they released their classic debut album in 1969, Monster Movie. Which is just a magnificent record. And I, the one I struggle with the most is probably whether or not Future Days... Is better than this a lot of people will tell you it's their best album or at least an equal to their other two best albums um, and sometimes I listen to monster movie and I feel that like it might be an even better album but it depends what mood I'm in um, certainly it's, it's only four tracks long father cannot yell is one of their finest songs and Malcolm Mooney establishes himself as a very idiosyncratic vocalist he left the band after this album for on the advice of a psychiatrist, um, he sounds perpetually schizophrenic in his yelping and wailing, and apparently that was carried over into his real life. He did come back in the 1980s when the band did a sort of victory lap. Um, years after they kind of stopped moving, they got back together for just tours and, and you know, just to say hi. He was the vocalist then. And you do right is absolutely fantastic it's a 20 minute track and one of the reasons why i think that it might be a better album than future days is i think you do right is a more compelling track perhaps than bel air another 20 minute track um it's it's the uh, tw 20 minutes and 27 seconds the entirety of the second side of the album and it's magnificent and the uh, lyrics i was blind now i can see you made a believer out of me were cribbed by uh, fans primal scream for moving on up a terrific album and nine out of ten at the very least um, from there we got soundtracks which is a compilation album uh, but it's a fascinating one um, the 
music on it introduces Damo Suzuki. So on the way to a show, the band saw Damo Suzuki from Japan busking in the streets of Germany and thought he was strange enough for their band. So um, they invited him to play and sing with the band that night, despite the fact that he'd never actually heard any of their music. If you've heard the recent release schedule of bootleg recordings from Cannes that they've started doing over the last two years, you can understand that their shows will often not play any music they've ever played before. They will simply jam for hours. So he fitted in amazingly well and joined the band. And on Soundtracks, which is a collection of music they made for movies and came out in 1970, he sings on the first three tracks and they're all excellent. I mean, I think the opener Deadlock, uh, from the film Deadlock, um, points to a future of the sort of bending Pixies guitar sound, that stinging bending Pixies guitar sound. It's a, it's a really contemporary late 80s rock sound, alt rock sound, and, and Suzuki's vocals as well. It's, um, he's got such a unique, unrepeatable style. Um, Tango Whiskey Man, another great track from Deadlock, and, and so is a title track from Deadlock, which is also called Deadlock in brackets title music, are all excellent. Um, the loosely drumming of Jackie Liebersit is um, predicting the future of Cat, uh, which is the fact that their dominant instrumentalist would be their drummer, and particularly his incredible white funk drumming. Uh, I don't even know if white funk means anything, but it seems to apply to them a lot. Um, and it's a very loose limb track as well. And the third track, Deadlock Title Music as well, points to um, another sort of future from them. Um, two of the tracks on the album are with Malcolm Mooney on Soul Desert and She Brings the Rain, which is, um, I guess, the, the final track, She Brings the Rain, is... A little bit like um, a Captain Beefheart ballad. Um, a little bit almost like uh, that sort of jazzy number the White Stripes did on Elephant, I think. I can't remember what it was called. Um, Don't Turn the Light On, Leave Me Alone from the Schwabbing Report film is perhaps the highlight other than the last track I'm going to talk about. Um, and it, it reminds of one of their greatest songs, I'm So Green, uh, a little bit radio-heady for the first and not last time, uh, particularly in the gu guitar chords throughout the midsection. The whole thing is worth it for the 15-minute long Mother Sky, one of their finest top five songs, a driving song that leaps out the gate 100 miles an hour and is a flat-out masterpiece, one of the greatest songs in rock uh, with Damo Suzuki over the top of it the high point of their music from the movie Deep End is absolutely phenomenal. It's as good a 10 minute rock song as there is like East West or something like that from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. It's absolutely magnificent, charging music. And then we move on to one of the three album runs that would define them and Amo Suzuki and be three of the most innovative, influential, and revered three album runs in history. Tago Omega, their second studio album proper in 1971. I'd probably give soundtracks an eight and a half out of 10, which is still a really good score. Uh, Tago Omega 
was an uh, I think a huge influence on the kind of music where the straightforward rock not that you can call anything on this very original album straightforward is the first half of the album and the more instrumental experimental stuff is in the second half and I think that fit over to Another Green World by Brian Eno and then Low and Heroes by David Bowie I think it's the most influential on those three albums um, so we get a run of perfection from them um, like the stinging crescendos of Paper House is one of their great they do really good maudlin melodies um, the second hack track Mushroom one of their most famous is the kind of proto-industrial funk that can are famous for um, very influential on the likes of the Happy Mondays Jackie Lieber's in full flight um, Damo as well Damo Suzuki is central to virtually every track that the band did uh, whenever he was singing and it wasn't just instrumental and he uses his voice so well because he can go from talking to yelping to sort of gentle soft melodic singing to crooning uh, he was a very expressive singer uh, and it's re-listening to these albums as I have done this for this piece has shown how much he was an integral instrument in the band's best music um, oh yeah, another great track, the one that um, the English band The Fall would um, use in their track in tribute to the, the band uh, called I Am Damo Suzuki, uh, would actually borrow the melody from Oh Yeah. Uh, pretty long tracks as well, two of those over seven minutes. None of that compares to arguably their number one track. It often features in the best can tracks of all time. And that's the 18 minute Hallelujah not Hallelujah, but Hallelujah, which has one of the most legendary industrial funk patterns in history and drum beats from Jackie Liebesit, which just pounds for 18 minutes. It's a Titanic track. It sounds colossal and huge, and it's one of their most storied ever songs. And then we get into the really experimental stuff, which is Ong, or Ong, um, which is a near 18 minute abstract palette, which is very, very interesting. Avant-garde, I've put down Podoreski here. Uh, some of the more sort of avant-garde European scratchy composers, artists like Nurse With Wound. Uh, it's very dark ambient. Um, it um, moves through various, it's never boring at all. It moves through so many different states. And it showcased a band pioneering off further than any of their contemporaries really would be going at that point, even though some of their other ones like Asherah Temple and the like would be doing these half hour long tracks. I don't think, and Faust, uh, a little bit later perhaps, I don't know many that were involving so much in the way of, of non-song textural stuff, which is amazing. And Peking O is probably the more challenging of the two. Um, that's 11 minutes long, so you're up to about nearly half an hour of this ambient experimentation. There's a lot of post-rock that comes through this music uh, and Damo Suzuki is a lot, featured a lot more heavily on this one. And it's got the um, Bel Air transitions rather than being one track that sort of goes through stages. It's like it's got other tracks coming in, at times veering almost into a normal song structure. And it's got the hardest, most jarring finale of all the tracks as well. Um, bring me 
coffee or tea ends almost like David Bowie's heroes by moving the whole experimental part back to the center uh, back with a rock song at the end uh, the very sort of ruminative come down song which is bring me coffee or tea one of rock's defining and best double albums a straight 10 out of 10 in anyone's book uh, and they would follow that with well in between a single called soup which was featured on a german detective show and became a hit record enabling the band to move into better studios. Most of their music at this point was used, was still being made by Holger Suke on a two-track tape recorder, where he would splice bits and bobs of songs together. I do believe they must have been writing songs because that doesn't always work for me. Eggy Bam Yassi was the album that followed, and if Tago Omega was this maximalist 73 minute-long album where everything is very long. Eggy Bamiassi was the opposite. It was, it's almost like David Bowie's low to Heroes, even though Eggy Bamiassi is a much happier album and Tango Mago's a darker album, whereas Low is a darker album and Heroes is a happier album and a more expansive one. Um, Eggy Bamiassi has much tighter, it's got a lot of three-minute pop singles which are amongst the best material the band ever recorded. Um, it kicks off with an eight-minute song, which is a, a, unusual on this album, even though there's two, there's two long tracks on the album. Um, but Pinch shows the funkiest drumming from Leibniz yet. Uh, it's incredibly light but potent. Um, and some spoken word stuff from Damo. It reminds of the origins of Daft Punk and the early LCD sound system music, uh, like Losing My Edge, where... James Murphy actually name checks uh, the band can. Sing Swan Song is one of their most um, enticing melodies, uh, which was lifted wholesale and sampled wholesale by Kanye West for the album Graduation uh, for his track Drunk Hot Girls, which was um, not well liked on that album. And One More Night is just a funk pattern, just letting Liebesit and Zuke's bass occupy the center stage for five minutes, riding a riff. The whole thing is a lot more accessible than anything they've done, a lot more consistently accessible. We then move into uh, three of their best pop songs on the B-side, interspersed with a very long song. Vitamin C might be their most famous track. It's certainly their most used in media. Uh, it opens the first 10 minutes or so of Inherent Vice. I think they must have had the song on the loop because it's only three minutes long. It's been used multiple times in TV shows such as um, that Baz Luhrmann hip-hop one, The Get Down. It was a theme tune to one of the characters. Uh, it's an amazing track. The I'm Losing My Vitamin C line was apparently in relation to um, astronauts uh, who had recently started going into space losing their vitamin C. Soup is the only challenging track on the album, and most of it is actually really, really good. It's got the most sort of rock-sounding vocal and the most rock guitars, almost can being a little bit Led Zepp, a little bit drum solely. Um, but then it sort of moves into a freak, avant freakout, noise freakout through its later stages before moving on into sort of science fiction phasing synths and, and then ending and we go into a, a double header to finish the album. I'm So Green is the most at once Stone Roses and Happy Mondays track. It sounds, just listen to I'm So Green if you want to know how good this band is. 
uh, a terrific song. Uh, and they end with Spoon, which is their, you know, their hit record with this immortal um, prodded synth line and sound that goes throughout it. It's a, it's a great song. Another 10 out of 10 album. Um, and the final one featuring Damo Suzuki would be Future Days, which came out in 73. They were releasing a classic album every year. Amazing stuff. And each album would be off into a different tangent. And Future Days is completely different to what preceded it. The, it opens with the nine and a half minute long opening track, which is like almost like Bossa Nova, but also like Brazilian Tropicalia. It's the most gentle uh, and soothing track they've got with these really insidious riffs poking through it that make it incredibly catchy. Um, and again, Leibovitz drumming is front and center. It fades in over a few minutes. Uh, and it's got this really nice seesaw strobe synth going on. It's a terrific track, one of their greatest. And, and Spray, which follows uh, eight and a half minutes long. And near instrumental is very sort of post-rock where Talk Talk would be on Laughing Stock and Spirit of Eden. Uh, and also obviously quite radio-heady. It would also point to the subsequent album, Soon Over Babaluma. Uh, and it's a rhythmic masterclass of a record and then we get the um, one short track on the album Moonshake which is virtually a remake of Mushroom is arguably even better than Mushroom uh, it's got the most sublime drum pattern in history it's incredible and then we move into a 20 minute track which is Bel Air and unlike their other long form tracks at this stage like Hallelujah and You Do Right this is a collage of multiple pieces of music stitched together rather than one song evolving as it moves and sometimes i find it utterly compelling and sometimes a little bit less compelling it's got this great sense of travel uh, and some of the elements are sometimes stronger than other elements how you feel about this track is whether or not you think it's probably their finest album or whether you think it's slightly lower than the other two i'm going to give it a nine and a half out of ten I did listen to that Bel Air track twice yesterday and once I was mostly compelled and once I was compelled. But um, I think in my heart of hearts I can't say it's as good as Eggy Banyasi or Tago Mago. And that was the end of Damo Suzuki who met a German girl and became a Jehovah's Witness and left the music industry for 10 years. After that he intermittently came back but never really got back together to play with the band unlike Malcolm Mooney did for an album at the I think around 1989 I'm sweating now it's so humid and that was the arguably the greatest three album run in history and the last classic album they recorded for me is Soon Over Babaluma it came out in 1974 and after that, their albums went down in quality and I don't think are essential. Why bother when they're so good up to this point? Um, it's also one of their most futuristic records, given the chain reaction and quantum physics, the two near 10 minute tracks on side two, uh, point to techno and trance and uh, the use of drum machines and stuff a lot more. And also um, uh, sequences in uh, synthesizing music a lot more and the band take on vocal duties themselves to an extent where they almost sound like Damo Suzuki at points um, they're all good tracks really um, Come Star La Luna is one of their catchiest and uh, Chain Reaction and Quantum Physics 
point in directions that they hadn't even done. And that is an incredible five studio album run, as good as any act in history. They do also have um, the collection that came out, I think just after that in 1976, is um, Unlimited edition came out in 1976 which is a collection of music that hadn't made it onto the other soundtracks collection or any of the albums and it is mostly fantastic uh, it's very long and there's some there's another 20 minute track on their cutaway which is very very interesting actually um, and it, like Gamora which opens it is fantastic a really really strong song um, so there's 20 there's 19 tracks on there including some long ones um, but it's a fantastic uh, double album where they push in directions which didn't fit on the albums. Uh, it's um, probably the most fun and weird of their records in that you get um, sonic palettes that aren't used on any of the albums. A fantastic compilation that rounds out the f by expanding the presence of Damo Suzuki and Malcolm Mooney into a, a double album as they both appear on this album as well. So those are seven brilliant albums i'd give unlimited edition an eight and a half out of ten as well for me if you're going to get into can i would start with eggy bam yassi and then i would go to tago mago then future days uh, and your life will be changed forever and r.i.p to damo suzuki um it's given me a new appreciation for he wasn't just riding one of the greatest bands in history he was an integral instrument in their best music and very influential on subsequent vocalists, a unique vocalist himself, and listening back, capable of a much wider range of texture and tone and attack and melody than I'd previously given him credit for. So a tribute to both the recently deceased Damo Suzuki and arguably my favorite band of all time, Can. <laughs>